In its annual threat assessment this year, the Swedish Security Service explained that Russia is the single largest actor threatening Sweden's security. No wonder that Sweden is now joining the NATO military alliance. Most Swedish Vikings went to East, to what's nowadays Russia. Oh. So they think that the, the name Russia comes from a part in Sweden called Ruslagen, and they, that became Rus. Because you can see that they have a plan making the Baltic Sea a Swedish sea. And they said that we are obliged to fulfill what Charles XII started, namely fighting the Russians. And then the same demand came during the Second World War. And in the 1950s and 60s, Sweden have had this discussion about becoming a nuclear power. Oh, wow. And also experimented with a, a nuclear uh, bomb of its own. The rumor was that Sweden was very generous still. You could come and be accepted in Sweden. And also our prime ministers had for a number of years said that we should be willing to, to uh, accept refugees. This is part of the Swedish DNA. But then in December 2015, you hear from a lot of Swedish municipal palaces that no, we are on our knees. We can't cope anymore. So then it comes to an end. Probably, and I would say that, and I'm not the only one who's saying this, that Sweden is probably one of the most Americanized countries that you find in the world. Did you know that Sweden has not been in a war for 209 years? Let me repeat that. Sweden has not been involved in a war in more than two centuries. That's longer, well, that's longer than any country I can think of. It's certainly longer than Switzerland's long record of peace. The Swedish like to claim that their long record of peace is due to Sweden's kings and politicians choosing peace over war. But as my guest will explain, that's not entirely true. The real reason has more to do with persistent diplomacy and just sheer good luck. Hey there, news peelers. Today is August 25th, 2023. And this is Adele, your host at the History Behind News podcast. Aren't you tired of the repetitive news on TV and social media? They just go over the same dramatized developments all day long. Do you ever wonder what happened before our news? I mean, how do we get here? They say if you don't know your history, you're bound to repeat it. So while others cover the news, I uncover its history. I call this peeling the history behind news, which we accomplish in weekly conversations with distinguished scholars who delve deep into history to give us their fascinating perspectives from our past. I'm committed to making in-depth history that are researched and written by scholars, enjoyable and accessible to everyone. So grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink or both. And let's get into it. Back in July, Turkey approved Sweden's bet to become a member of NATO. 
What this means is that President Erdogan finally agreed to forward Sweden's accession protocol to the NATO Assembly. If you recall, Mr. Erdogan had blocked Sweden's bid to join NATO for more than a year, and all the ratification is still pending, I don't think anyone doubts that it will happen. Sweden will become NATO's 32nd ally and will give NATO an additional 1,000 miles of territory along the Baltic Sea. With Sweden, NATO's forces will effectively encircle Russia's Baltic fleet at Kaliningrad, a port that doesn't freeze in the winter. Sweden also shares a long border with Finland, its former colony, a colony that Sweden lost to Russia. Finland shares Europe's longest border with Russia, so if Russia attacks Finland, then Sweden can transport NATO troops and resources to defend Finland. So you see, Sweden's NATO membership will shift the balance of power in Northern Europe. But Sweden has been here before, in a big way. The mighty Swedish Empire dramatically changed the balance of power in Europe, its military structure, geopolitics, and even religion. This episode is a conversation that I've been eager to have for some time. Because the little I knew about Sweden's history, which I learned by reading books on Russia's history, opened my eyes to Sweden's amazing past, how Sweden became a nation, and how it became an empire. An empire that European powers feared, and an empire that could have changed world history. I know. I know what you're thinking. One can say that about any former empire, right? That they could have changed world history. That's indeed true. But in the case of Sweden, there's the story of King Charles XII, a fascinating character who had the potential to change history by perhaps preventing Russia's rise to the status of a major European power. But this episode is not about playing what if with history. As you'll note in this episode, my guest Professor Ulf Zander, who joined me from Sweden, tells us how the memory and legacy of Charles XII still resonates in Sweden, and it stands for different and often opposing propositions, political aims, and geopolitical angles. In this episode, I asked Professor Zander how is it that Sweden has produced many popular English-language music bands, such as ABBA, Roxette, and the Ace of Bass. One of the surprises, at least surprising to me, that comes out of this question is that Sweden is one of the most Americanized countries in the world. And this kind of makes sense because of Sweden's historic connection to the U.S. For example, one million Swedes immigrated to the U.S. in the last decades of the 19th century and in early 20th century. But Sweden's immigration story is complicated. Did you know that more than 15% of Sweden's population is foreign-born? That's a higher percentage than the U.S. In this episode, you learn why this massive immigration into Sweden it started after World War II, perhaps a bit of wartime guild was a factor here, and why this tsunami of immigration into Sweden pretty much dried up in 2015. And no, I didn't forget the Vikings. In this episode, Professor Zander shares with us the continued importance of Vikings of Sweden to modern times how at times they are promoted as traitors, and at other times as brave and fearsome warriors. And it's more than that. I'll give you one facet of it. Where did the name Russia come from? I will tell you this much. Mr. Putin won't like the answer to this question. A professor of history at the Department of History in Lund University in Sweden, Professor Zander's main interest is how history is communicated and used. He has published on the debates and uses of Swedish history, 
from the late 19th century to early 21st century, as well as on monuments, film, history, and identity and use of history in the United States. He's currently working on several research projects. The one that we discuss in this episode is that he's writing a book together with historian and film historian Tommy Gustafsson about the Swedish warrior king Charles XII in Swedish cinema. To learn more about Professor Zander and his publications and other projects, you can visit his academic homepage, the link for which is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. So, stay with me as Professor Zander and I peel the history behind this news. Professor Zander, it's a pleasure to have you on our program. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. Um, to talk about Sweden's history, I think we need to have some context first. So let's begin with some basic but quite important questions. Who are the people of Sweden? Well, it's interesting because for a long time we said that Sweden is a very ethnic, homogetic, homogetic country. But in a way, it was very diverse already from the beginning. Oh. Because the first who came to Sweden... They came from the south and uh, they come from very far away and came to what Sweden today when the Ice Age came to an end some 10,000 years ago. And then there was another wave of, if we could call it immigration, but that was, was from the east. So already during the Stone Age, we had a very mixed population in Sweden. But after that, and for a long time, up until, say, the Second World War, uh, the migration to Sweden or from Sweden haven't been that great, with, of course, the exception of, of a great immigration in the 19th century, mostly to, to the U.S. I see, yeah. And, and I, that's actually a very important point, Swedish immigration to the U.S., and we'll discuss that. I have a... Um, segment on that that I'm excited to talk to you about. But before we go there, you said two things. It, immigration into Sweden from the south, and also you mentioned the east. Um, in, in preparation for our conversation, I've come across several references to Germanic people coming to Sweden, and also I've come across the term Rus, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, R-U-S. Could you talk about that a little bit, please? Yes, uh, and I think since like, Germany is a country that Sweden has always been in connection to all long before it became a nation. Okay. So we had tribes moving both to and from these countries. So, uh, as, and especially in the, the early Middle Ages. And before that, we had Vikings that were on what is nowadays Sweden. And while many of, that, of those Vikings that were in what's today's Denmark or today's Norway headed south or west, most Swedish Vikings went to east, to what's nowadays Russia. Oh. So they think that the, the name Russia comes from a part in Sweden called Ruslagen, and they, that became Rus. So some of the first 
Oh, that's fascinating. Russia is probably of Scandinavian or Swedish heritage. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, but I don't think that Putin would like that as a, a history that uh, he, he would write. But uh, anyway. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you. Mr. Putin may not like that. Uh, Professor Zander, you mentioned the term Vikings, and you talked about how Vikings from Sweden moved east to Russia and may have been the ancestor, may have become the ancestor of modern Russians. Uh, and this made me think, are the Vikings from Sweden not different than the Vikings that we Americans and you know many people around the world in popular shows know from Denmark and Norway? You can see why I'm asking that question because you know there's so many Viking shows on the History Channel, you know Netflix and what have you. I, I don't think there was so different. We had this big debate in the early 20th century because there was this Viking who invaded Paris. Oh. And then the big question was, was this man from Denmark, Norway, or Sweden? And, of course, that was impossible to answer because those nations weren't existing. And the other thing was that this was a man that moved quite freely between these areas. And I would say a lot of the culture of the Vikings or sim that is similar for all those free connection, connecting areas because they were not like nation states that we see today. So I see. you could move quite freely within them. And some of what we now would call Swedish Vikings also, for instance, went south and fought uh, in the south and, and also had some trade. And that is also, like, we know a, quite a lot of the Vikings, but there's still much to, to learn. And that I see. is also why you could use Vikings in so many different connections. So when Sweden was to be a part of Europe, then you could say that the Vikings, they were never violent. They never fought, as you see in the television series. They were really afraid because we wanted to be a part of the European Union, known for its trade. So it's more like a political use of Vikings, and you see that quite a lot. But the, the older use of it was, of course, the Viking as a big warrior. Yeah, so, so let me see. Um, let me make sure I understand this correctly. Vikings from Sweden, the story of Vikings from Sweden is very much in mesh with those from, let's say, Norway and, and Denmark. And when we look at and the attacks, let's say, on England or on uh, France or even as far inland as Paris, it's hard to distinguish which modern nation they came from. But in modern discussions, what the people of Sweden bring about their Viking heritage is the trade, not the war. Well, it, it came and went, I would say. Nowadays, oh, it came and went. Is, is once more a, a warrior, more than a tradesman. I see, because now you're part of the U European Union, right? Yes. And, and now you can go back to the warrior past. Oh, that's very interesting. Um, you've mentioned this in the last few minutes several times, uh, both about Sweden and then also later about Norway and Denmark. You said long before these countries became nation, a nation. So let's talk about Sweden. When did 
Sweden become a nation? I suppose we can ask that question about any country, but I've heard this sort of discussed about Sweden. Well, it's been uh, up to discussion this year because 2023 is the 500-year anniversary from when Gustav Vasa became king of Sweden. And that has, in a traditional way, been seen as the start of Sweden as a nation-state. But I would say that most historians argue that it's already during the 13th century that we could find something that is more like becoming a Swedish state because we have two rulers. One was called Birger Jarl and the other, his son, Magnus Ladulos. And they did something very modern, you can say. They demanded tax from, oh. from the citizens. And <laughs> as a return, they also promised to protect them. So you can see that they built quite a lot of castles and fortresses. And also, Birgjol, he is the founder of Stockholm. And Stockholm also becomes a center for what you could call an, an early Sweden. Yeah. So why why do we go to King Gustav uh, in 1523 versus the prior kings in the 13th century? Well, he's uh, that is kind of uh, more obvious because you had this union between Denmark, Norway, and Sweden from 1397 up until 1523, and that was a union that was a result, you could say, of the Hanseatic League and areas in Germany that are very powerful because they have more or less monopoly of trade in the Baltic Sea region. So in Scandinavia, you find that we could perhaps be more powerful if we are in one union. But this is a union that will be very clearly dominated by Denmark. So some Swedes, and Gustav Vasa is the most successful of them, try to create independence. Ah. So you could say that he rebels against a king that is voted to be a Swedish king, but he's a Dane. So he makes a rebellion against this king and is successful. So oh, that wow. you could, during the 19th century, write the nation history and that he became the hero. He is our founding father. I see. That makes a lot of sense. So they, even though Sweden was part of a union of kingdoms, in effect, Denmark was more or less in charge and Sweden wanted independence. So that's why 1523 is so important. In this period that we were just talking about from the 13th century, the two earlier kings all the way to 1523, something interesting happened uh, that I noted and I wanted to um, speak with you about. Um, somewhere, let me see if I have the correct date. Uh, 1335, I see it in my notes. Slavery and serfdom were abolished in Sweden. Is, is that true? Yes, that's true. I, that's and so early in history. That's amazing. Yes, it is. And and you could say, in a way, it could have happened even earlier because huh. it's an effect that Swedes becomes Christians. And Christians is the meaning at this time 
are not allowed to have slaves. But it, it will take up until 1335 because some say, well, you can't have slaves that are Christians. But if we take our ships and sail to the Baltic area, we could take slaves because they are not yet Christians. But after oh. a while, they are also Christians. And then you can't make this escape from the rules. So then you say, well, now it's no more slavery. I see. I see. So uh, slavery and serfdom with respect to Christian people. And I take it that Sweden never had uh, African slaves that, or, or other from other parts of the world that were not Christian. Later on, during the 17th, 17th century, we had for a very short time uh, a small harbor in uh, Western Africa. And also uh, Sweden took over an island in the Caribbean from France. And that, on that island, you had some slavery as well. So Sweden has also a history of slavery, but it's not, you couldn't compare it to Britain or France or America, similar countries. Yeah. And we'll be back after a short break to talk about the Swedish empire. We'll be right back. Never again alone. In 1939, the Soviet Union invaded Finland. Similar to Putin now, Stalin then predicted a swift victory. He said Finland would fall in 12 days. But Finland didn't fall. Alone, without much help from anyone, Finland defended itself against the military might of the USSR. This became known as the Winter War, after which some Finnish generals planted the idea that Finland should never have to fight a war without allies. Hence the phrase, never again alone. Last year, when Finland began the process of joining NATO, I spoke with Dr. Jason Lavery, who joined me from Helsinki, Finland. He explained why it took so long for Finland to seek NATO membership, and shared with me the history of wars between Russia and Finland, and drew parallels to Russia's war with Ukraine now. In the detailed caption of this episode, I've provided a link to my conversation with Dr. Lavery in Season 2, Episode 22. Now, let's get back to our conversation with Professor Zander about the history of Sweden. Professor Zander, how did Sweden become an empire? And, and, and I asked this question in particular because of Sweden's relatively smaller population in, when compared to, like, let's say, Germans and Poles and Russians, right? Yeah, you're so correct. So I would say it is kind of an anomaly that Sweden could become an empire because it hadn't the population or the industry that it really needed to be become so big as it was for some hundred years. And you could say it has two starting points. The earlier one is already in the 16th century, when Eric XIV starts to expand to the east. But the, the big uh, upswing is with Gustavus Adolphus 
in the early 17th century. And he is, as usual, as Swedish kings are, at war with Denmark. We are always at war with Denmark in, in <laughs> the, the period from some, well, 13th century and, and onwards until the, the 18th century. Uh, and during these fights, he also gets involved with um, in a war in Poland and is quite successful. And this spills over to the, the Thirty Year War. And then you could say that if you want a very traditional explanation, you would say that Sweden's way to become a great power is that Gustavus Adolphus defends the Protestantic faith. Because oh. this is not that long after Martin Luther. And Sweden has become a, a Lutheran country, a Protestant country. And now Gustavus Adolphus is bringing troops to what is nowadays Germany to fight against the Catholic and their armies. And he is a, a skillful warrior king, and he dies in 1632, which is, you will have a 30-year war for many years to come. It don't take an end until 1648. But Sweden becomes, during this period, a major power, and it also gets territory in Germany, what's nowadays Germany. So a more modern explanation would be that Sweden wants to become a great power because of trade. Because you can see that they have a plan making the Baltic Sea a Swedish sea. It's like the Romans, they had the middle, middle sea as Mare Nostrum, our sea. And now the Swedes, they have a similar solution, you could say. Or later when the Ottomans had the Black Sea and Mediterranean, and for a while they call it the Ottoman Lake, kind of like that in control of that uh, exactly. trade route. Um, when you say that uh, under King Gustav uh, and during the Thirty Year War, um, Swedish troops went into Germany, well, what is modern day Germany now? Were these troops all Swedish or were they Swedes in addition to mercenaries and other nations? Like most of our armies at this stage, it, it is Swedes in minority, I would say. Oh. And quite a lot of the soldiers are coming for what nowadays is, is Finland, but that is a part of, of Sweden called the oh, Eastern Half. But also they have a lot of troops that have their origins in, for instance, Germany. And it was quite common if you lost a battle, you could just change side. So instead <laughs> of becoming prisoner of war, you became a member of a new army. And of course, you could perhaps get some trouble with loyalty, but it seemed like it worked most of the times. Interesting. Um, Professor Zander, I could talk about this subject for another 10 minutes, but <laughs> instead of doing that, I want to go talk about another uh, Swedish king. You mentioned that Gustav died. And this 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 king also died an untimely death. Um, in our prior communications, I spoke with you about Charles the Twelfth. Uh, that I, I learned about him almost accidentally when I was reading Peter the Great's biography, 
And he's just such a fascinating character. And he's important, not just for Swedish history, but also, I think, uh, European history. So let's talk about Charles XII. And as I understand it, you're actually doing a project on it. Yes, me and a colleague, we are writing a book about Charles XII in Swedish cinema. Oh, and, uh, interesting. He was kind of an important person in Sweden, most of the times in the 19th century and up until the Second World War. And still, you mean his legend, point. his impact? His impact, you could say, because yeah. already Voltaire, the, the famous French intellectual, wrote yeah. a biography. I mean, it's not many years after Charles XII died. And Voltaire makes him into what was very popular in, in the 18th century, the tragic hero. Huh. So, and, and then you don't have to acknowledge all his mistakes. Because he, he is so good <laughs> on the battlefield. And it's, well, it's kind of meant to be that he will be defeated or even killed. Uh, so that fitted a, a heroic pattern. And, and that hasn't, I mean, that hasn't been the, the final uh, way of, of seeing Charles XII. Because he has been kind of a battleground in Sweden. And in what sense? Was, Why? Well, some wanted him as this big warrior king, great warrior king. Others said that he was unresponsible. Why should he make war in other countries than Sweden most of his time as a king? While Sweden became a country that was more ridden of with poverty and, and uh, a lot of people died of they didn't have nourishment enough and so on. And those who survived, they were also, they had the risk of becoming a part of a Swedish army. And most of those who were in the Swedish army didn't die in battle. They did died of diseases or accidents or something like that. So it, it wasn't oh, much wow. of a career becoming a soldier. Let me dig into Charles XII. Uh, and, and, and by doing that, I want to really use that as a pretext to talk about Swedish culture then. One of the things that I learned about Charles XII is that he primarily spoke German, especially in childhood. Was that the thing in Swedish royal families that they spoke German? Or French. It, it depended okay. kind of the, the fashion of the time. But, I see. Uh, and I would say that German, the German language is very important in Sweden from the time of the Hanseatic League in the 14th century and onwards. But from the 18th century, French becomes more and more popular among the elite. Uh, and he is also taught by not only Swedes, but also other important persons because they think that, you know, he's a king. He should have the best... Yeah. Persons to, that could guide him. Yeah. And also, uh, it, it becomes quite a short education because he becomes king at already at 15 years of age. And from, I mean, from 1697, when he becomes king, he is on the battlefield almost all the time. Another thing about him, by the way, this, 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 uh, this thing that we were talking about where he spoke primarily German. 
back then in Europe for our audience, many members of the royal family didn't speak necessarily the language of the country over which they reigned. So it's not that unusual. Um, and then I think about, you know, we're talking about being unresponsible. I, I want to pick out several things here. One is he didn't marry, which, which is a big deal for a king. He didn't leave an heir. What, how does that play into Swedish history? That must have been catastrophic. Like who becomes king next? Yeah, and this becomes a problem because oh, they had still relatives that could uh, take over, but it will become a, a bigger problem later on. And that is why we have the Bernadotte family on our throne nowadays, because when you don't, later on when we had Charles XIII, he didn't have an heir, and then you had to find a king somewhere else. So it, there, there still was relatives that could, be, that was of the same family as Charles XII. So, mm -hmm. but of course it, it's, it, it's very unusual that you don't have a wife or a queen or, or leave legitimate children behind. Yeah, that's one of the primary duties of a king to leave an heir for the, for the smooth succession. Uh, of the uh, kingdom or empire. Now uh, let's 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 talk about Charles XII in the context of the um, uh, Swedish Empire. Um, there's a famous battle. Uh, I actually read the text for this several times. This is many years ago. I just found it so interesting. The Battle of Narva, in which um, the Swedish are outnumbered, but they famously beat the Russians. Uh, and at that time, I'm speaking from memory here, Professor Zander, so correct me if I'm wrong, uh, sort of Russia is sort of open to the Swedes, this, and they don't go further in. Is that something that's discussed, or is this, you know, was that a strategic mistake that limited the, the Swedish empire? Yes, I would say, and, and there's been so many who have written about this, because it's, of course, it, it, choice that was so important in Swedish history. And, and you could say it was a number of battles that the Swedes were outnumbered and still made a success because they were they had a tactic that was very offensive and was very, I mean, the enemy was terrified. And, and very often, organized and disciplined army. Uh, exactly. Very impressive. But what Charles XII does and that that is probably his big mistake he he turns his attention to poland because there is an, a ruler called august the second or august the great and he's among other things mostly famous because he had so many children and uh, i mean with a lot of different women i mean they they count them in hundreds oh wow so, but he <laughs> he had some time to rule as well and and charles the 12th he hunts this august for several years in Poland. And in the end, he finds a solution. And then he says that, well, now Poland is secure. Now it's time to, to deal with Russia. But the mistake is that Tsar Peter has by then very much modernized and improved Russia and the Russian army. So it's, you could say it's too late. Yeah. And it's kind of a, 
well, it's a mistake for so many reasons, because Russians are also very skillful, because they don't want to have a battle on a big ba battleground. And they just retreat, and they burn, and they retreat, and they burn, and it's getting colder and colder and colder. And a lot of the Swedish soldiers, they die long before they come to the next very famous battle at Poltava. And then yeah. the Russians decide, well, let's make a more traditional battle. But by then they had made a lot of fortifications. And also Charles XII is wounded. That's so he's not yeah. in command. And the problem is that the three commanders under him, they haven't communicated with each other. And one of them is killed early on. And the soldiers don't know what to do. So one third of the Swedish forces just, it's gone. And wow. this has a time when they really needed to have an organized leader. And so they could trust, but someone was in command. So this is a catastrophe. And, and they had to have to surrender. Most of them, not at Poltava, but they do it a few days later on. And they see that. It's hopeless. The situation is hopeless. Something about the, the number, I forget, but it's something like 10 or 12,000 Swedish soldiers surrender and later they stay in um, they stay in Russia. They become part of sort of Russian society. They provide a lot of technical skills that Russians needed. Um, this battle of our audience, this battle of Poltova is actually really important. Uh, and there's a town, actually it was a village, now it's a town in Russia. And the reason I say it's important, I'm saying this from my perspective, subject for your correction confirmation, it starts, it becomes the beginning of the end of the Swedish Empire. Am I making too much of this? No, I would say you're, you're so correct. I see. And, and I think it kind of um, a blessing in disguise. A blessing in disguise. Oh, wow. Okay. Yes, because Sweden couldn't have managed, I would say, to hold on to this empire for, I mean, it was so overstretched at that time. So it was just waiting to collapse, you could say. And ah. as a positive side, you also, you, you get a much more ethnic homogeneous country because you lose some areas that were inhabited by people that weren't Swedes. So you get a smaller country, a country that is easier to, to rule. And then uh, some hundred years later, you also lose Finland. Yeah, yeah. And so during the 19th century, when you have all this nationalism, there is very few groups in Sweden that says, we don't want to be a part of a country because they are already a part of a country. So you don't have to make all this integration project. And of course, some are really uh, not treated very good. For instance, for Sami people in the North, that very, uh, in a very brutal manner are turned into Swedes. And that is not a proud chapter in the Swedish history. Could you, could you re repeat their names, please? The Sami people. Are they like indigenous people? Yes. Okay. And you find them also in Norway and Finland. And I they, see. 
nomadic people also. Yeah. Is I, I want to close with this question. Um, you said that Charles the Twelfth is something that is discussed. Is he discussed now? Now that we we're getting close to NATO. Not as much as he used to be. And uh, a colleague of mine, he had um, a visit from the then Ukrainian ambassador to Sweden. And this was when it was a jubilee or anniversary for the Battle of Poltava. Yeah. And yeah. Ukrainian which was ambassador. Very, yeah, which was in Ukraine. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, exactly. And he asked uh, my colleague, are you going to make a big spectacle? that uh, Charles XII and all this is big man in Swedish history. And by the way, we are erecting a statue of Charles XII. And my colleague had to say no, because Charles XII is almost unmentionable in Sweden today. Because, oh. and, and this is a, quite a story of its own, because this is a story that also deals with the First World War. And then some in Sweden wanted Sweden, that was neutral both during the First and the Second World War. They wanted Sweden to take part on the German and Austrian side. And they said that we are obliged to fulfill what Charles XII started, namely fighting the Russians. And then the same demand came during the Second World War. And also by then, Joachim von Riventrop, that was the Nazi German foreign minister, he meets the Swedish ambassador in Berlin saying that, you know what? The German army is now so successful and we did something that you didn't do. We have conquered Poltava. And this is in 1942. <laughs> Don't you think it's time for you to join Germany oh, so... in the great fight against Russia? So, and when you follow the history of Charles XII, he also gets kind of an idol for those who are neo-Nazis or extreme right-wingers. Ah. So you could say he begins in the 20th century as kind of a Germany-connected king, and then he goes on to become a king that is racist, which he, of course, wasn't because he... He didn't know what it was to be a racist. Yeah. But uh, yeah. he is kind of tainted. You, you can't really discuss him nowadays because that is fascinating. His after history that is so problematic. It's so funny. His legacy has been used by so many different uh, uh, groups and uh, politicians. By the way, um, just a couple of minutes ago, you mentioned Potlova and I said it's in Ukraine. I just realized. Just about seven, eight minutes ago in our conversation, I said Potlova in Russia. It's a town in Russia. What I meant is that in the Russian Empire back then. It is in Ukraine, yes. Uh, let's take a break here. We'll be right back after a short break to talk about Sweden post-empire. Hey there, news peelers. We're working on a brand new website with many super-duper features, including videos of our guests and compilations of our episodes into series, with related blogs that are updated weekly, like series on U.S. politics, economy, health policies, environment, women's rights, and also series on many other countries, like Russia, Ukraine, China, and Brazil, and the British monarchy, and also a series on revolutions and protests, like those in Iran, Israel, and France. So be sure to check it out 
at historybehindnews.com. See you guys there. Professor Zander, Sweden has a rich history of exploration and adventurism. What I'm wondering is, did Sweden possess colonies like other European powers? And I want to distinguish that. In an earlier segment, you mentioned um, they, they they possessed a Caribbean island that they had taken from France, and they had a port in West Africa. But we don't hear about Sweden in the colonial conversation the way, let's say, we hear about the Dutch, um, Norway even, obviously France and Britain as well. It, and that's correct. And also, it, it, they didn't take this Saint Bartholomew from the French. They, they just could get it in, in the trading. Uh, it, it was, we, we can take this island, no problem. And then they sold it again, so uh, the Swedes. Uh, but Sweden oh. hasn't a colonial history as many other countries. But that has also perhaps been kind of a, a history that has been too much downplayed because oh. we still have it. Uh, and I think it was no later than last year that the first book on St. Bartholomew that actually dug into that there were slaves and, and were slaves and they were kind of ill-treated. And this is something that we haven't really discussed but oh. it has come up also in Swedish history nowadays. And it's similar like Danish history. And Danes had more of a colonial history, but it also taken them very long time to, to begin to discuss. And I would say it's more like, like Black Lives Matter and, uh -huh. and those kind of recent events that has turned the, the searchlight to this kind of dark history if i may say so well that's that's a positive thing to to have a level of introspection and look at your own history you said we still have it does sweden have colonies or sort of uh, abroad possessions still to this no. day no yeah no okay uh, so i say it's nothing nowadays what is the reason that the swedish governments didn't colonize other countries. I know Finland was an effective, effectively a colony. What about other places? Did Sweden just didn't have the manpower? Yeah, I would say that. And, and in a way, it's because of an adventure in, uh, in America that oh. just lasted for some 10 years. For Sweden had a colony called New Delaware, and oh. it was taken by the Dutch after a few times. And they wanted this to be so much more than it became. So it's more like after this, you couldn't say it wasn't anything but a failure. So you, you didn't think that this was a good thing. So you, and then Sweden during this, this time isn't a very rich country. You could say that time we talked about before, the great power era, that was a, a time when the, the Swedish average income more than doubled. Oh. But after that time, after 1720 and for more than 100 years, you had so much lower uh, financial status in Sweden. 
So it's kind of a poor country that has a hard time to compete. And sometimes politicians and, and militaries try to relive this great, great power era. But it's, it always ends, with a few exceptions, in losing wars and losing territory. Finland, for instance, yeah, and also yeah. territories in, in the northern of, of Germany. So it's more like Sweden is losing territory than it's gaining colonies. Interesting. Um, just a point of clarification for myself. When you say they tried for 10 years uh, a colony, uh, an adventure in uh, America, New Delaware, is that the Delaware state that we have today in the U.S.? Yes. Oh, that's fascinating. Um you mentioned wars and you know subsequent uh, Swedish kings and politicians wanted to relive the glory of the Swedish Empire um, and they lost battles. Uh, I think I'm I'm going to ask you a question that I think we sort of discussed in the past uh, in the prior segment, but let's revisit it because I, I want a more sort of a cogent answer to it. And that's this. When I was preparing for this conversation, I can't, I stumbled across something really fascinating that Sweden hasn't been in a war in a very, very long time, longer than Switzerland. Um, how, how, how did this happen? Well, it, it, I would say it's a combination of good diplomacy and luck uh, and a great deal of luck. And you could say that. Swedish politicians and, and especially social democrats have looked back on Swedish history and said that, well, neutrality is something that Swedish politicians and royalties choose. They choose this politics in the early 19th century. But that is not yet entirely true because we have, for instance, uh, the Crimean War, and then Sweden is prepared to take part in this war. But it, it that's in the end. 1850s, uh, where exactly. France, Turkey, and 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 Britain go against Russia, right? Exactly, and that war also spread to the Nordic countries. Uh, for instance, Russia, who had taken over um, Finland. They had a base on Åland that is that is part of Finland, but it's also quite close to Sweden. And the Brits, they are bombarding the Russian fortifications. So Sweden is very close to this conflict. And is, some are also, are also prepared to take part in this battle, but it ends, as I said. But then in 1864, the Swedish king promised the Danish king that if the Prussians and the Austrians are to attack Denmark, Swedish, the Swedish army will help the Danish army. Oh, but, an alliance, I see. But Swedish politicians and most of all Swedish generals saying, no, 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 this will not take place because our army is too bad, in too much of bad shape. So you may promise your Danish colleague this, but we will do it. So this is another Interesting. occasion that Sweden was almost being part of a war. And also, as I said before, both in 
during the First World War and to a lesser extent during the Second World War. Some Swedes want the nation to be a part of the war. So it's, and also during the Cold War, it's also, you know, a very, very tough situation. You have to balance between the, the US-led bloc and the Soviet-led bloc, and Sweden is in between. And there was a lot of incidents that could have turned into something else than, than it did. So, yeah, it, because I mean, you... it, it is marvelous that we had this long period of peace, but it, it could have been broken for so many times. From, from the year 1814 to now, Sweden hasn't had a war. Uh, and, you know, contemporary, based on what you're sharing with me, contemporary Sweden's, Swedish politicians claim that this is, a, this is because of our decision of neutrality, which you're debunking, saying that's not entirely true. It's a combination of uh, just good luck uh, and, and diplomacy, which brings me to this point. Why now? Why go to NATO now? Uh, you know, they endured the Cold War, which was really perilous. USSR was just next door. So why go to NATO now? That's a good question. And, and actually, a Czech journalist asked me the same thing. But she asked me before the war between Russia and Ukraine began. Ah. And at that time the discussion was very different and was more like it has been for so many decades. And then you had seen that there's been a lot of, most political parties has said that it's good that Sweden is neutral. But some more to the right has sometimes said, well, NATO is perhaps not that bad an option. And also some social democratic leaders had but they didn't tell the public, but they had long-going long going, um, discussions with American politicians, with NATO. So Sweden would have taken part on the Western alliance side if there was a, a Third World War. And this became also known during the 1990s and was kind of an upsetting oh. debate. But then it came back to we should stay neutral. We should also, and one important reason is that if we do so, Sweden are not a nuclear power. And in the 1950s and 60s, Sweden have had this discussion about becoming a nuclear power. Oh, wow. And also experimented with a, a nuclear uh, bomb of its own. But in the end, they found out that this could at its best, become like a Hiroshima or Nagasaki bomb. And this is at a time when the American and Soviet nuclear bombs are so much more e efficient and, and powerful. So it's, not, it's no use. So they just turned this idea down. And then it's February last year, and then it's turning very fast because you find that the... the situation is so much different because Russia is shown and Putin has shown his, his intentions. He's no, no longer just talking about being a, an aggressor. He's becoming one. And then both Finland and Sweden thinks that, well, we are also neighboring Russia. So um, why should we try to have this position in between? Because it would be 
for so many states, much better if we are also part of NATO. Yeah. So yeah. that is the, the reason how it began. And then it's another discussion that Finland now is a member of NATO, but Sweden is still waiting. But that has a lot of do, to do with Turkish domestic politics and to a certain extent Hungarian domestic politics and also Swedish domestic politics. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hopefully um, that alliance, NATO, will never have to exercise its terms. Uh, hopefully the conflict in Ukraine and Russia would somehow subside. Uh, um, let's take a break here. Stay with me and Professor Zander as we get into the perspective. The History Behind News podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast, especially on Apple and Spotify. And remember, don't keep us to yourself. Tell a friend about the History Behind News podcast. Professor Sander, in the last segment, you talked about how standard standard of living uh, diminished in Sweden uh, starting uh, early in the early 18th century. I think you said 1720s. Um, in my research, I noted that between 1850 to 1910, about one million Swedes immigrated to the U.S. I had to read this a couple of times. One million, and Sweden is relatively a small nation. What's Sweden's population now? Ten million. Oh my god! Wow. So it must have been less back then. But one million is—is is this because of the fact that Sweden was not industrialized yet? In a way, and uh -huh. it's becoming more and more industrialized during this period. And also, the agricultural sector is becoming modernized but it is not modernized in such a rapid pace so that it could make up for those many more births or there have been many children before but more of them survive because you have better medicine you have potatoes where that is the new uh, food that is the base food and, and you could uh, thrive on that and also peace so you get a, a much larger population and you could argue that if you didn't have immigration as a solution you would have starvation in sweden oh, and you wow. have that for, for small periods but i don't think you would have managed to feed the, the such a big population as it becomes in a quite quite rapid change since the, the especially since the agriculture is becoming more and more modernized. And that also means that fewer persons could live on working on farms. Yeah. So they moved to the cities and some of them could find work in the new industries, but it, it won't last. So you have to find another solution. And then you have migration. And for the south part of Sweden, where I come from, Many moved to Denmark, that it's much richer at that time, or Germany, and uh, also some travels to South America, but most goes to, to North America. But you could say also for different reasons. Uh, there is a very first phase. Many 
they move to America because of they find that they can't have a religious free life. Oh. You have a state church that is very monopolistic, and then you have this movement that you want to read the Bible among yourselves, and you have a Bible in the Swedish language. And then you don't want or need a priest that many see as just a representative of a repressive Swedish state apparatus. So some of them moved to America because there they could have a free religion. And Religious others, freedom. Oh, interesting. Okay. Others, they moved after we have some starvation in the 1850s and 60s. And then you find a lot of families moving also after the starvation because they find that you could get land and you could continue to be a farmer, but on much it's so much better in, in the US. And you also have these American agents sending material and you could find that, well, you know, the cows, they are five meters tall in, in the US, <laughs> not those small Swedish ones. Of course, we want to be a part of a successful uh, nation on the other side of the Atlantic. And that's and then that's you have interesting. A, a, a final phase, and then you have steamships. Yeah. And then you find that a lot of young Swedes, and not families anymore, but young Swedes, still singles, go to America, and many of them comes back and perhaps goes again and comes back and goes again. And that lasts until the... 1910, 1920-something. Oh, interesting. So three phases. One, based on religious reasons, early on religious freedom, later economic reasons where families go, especially after the 1850 uh, famines, and then later comes with the steamship where young people just go back and forth, almost perhaps for adventure, for work, or what have you. Um, this emigration history that you and I just discussed about uh, the Swedes, immigrating out of Sweden, it sits in stark contrast with another data that I came across. As I understand it, about 15% of Sweden's current population is foreign-born. And this is a staggering proportion because, you know, we can do just a simple Google search, and I'll tell you the numbers I came across. 13.6% of the U.S. population is foreign-born, so less than Sweden. About 10% of France's population is foreign-born, again, less than Sweden, and about 14.8% of UK's population is foreign-born, almost close to Sweden, but still less. But both France and UK were major colonial powers, and they give citizenship to many of their former colonial sort of uh, residents and citizens. And then America is the land of immigrants. What about Sweden? How did this happen? It, it's a very good question, and I don't think many Swedes has a good answer. But I, I will try to, to say what I think. And you could also find different faces here. And you find one uh, just after the Second World War, because since Sweden didn't take part in the war, the economy was still very, very good. And Swedish industry was expanding and needed workers. So they actually, representatives for Swedish companies went to the south of Europe to uh, find working personnel 
Italy, Greece, Turkey, for instance, and they knew that they would get a work, get a job when they came to Sweden. And finding a, a, a job also meant that most of them learned the language. So that was kind of a smooth part of the migration. And I would say that you after that also find that you also wanted Sweden to be generous. So many countries that were turning into dictatorships, we should embrace people coming from those countries. We should be a haven. And actually, if you if you should read Thomas More's very old book on yep. Utopia, you could compare his view on this science fiction state, so to say, with a Swedish self-perception of the good neighbor, the, the very generous uh, land that welcomes uh, people and they could be skillful or they could be or some other uh, not so skillful, but we, we, we should accept them. And part of this perhaps, and this is my speculation, a bad conscience for not taking part in the Second World War, for having oh. quite a repressive uh, politics on migration until 1942-43. Then you begin to welcome those who, who suffered so much during um, the Second World War. And in the end, Sweden accepts quite a lot of people in 1944-45 especially. But it's still there, like we didn't behave as good as we should have done. And this also turns into a politic for decades where you couldn't discuss uh, integration. And of course, you couldn't discuss the bad things with immigration when migration and integration didn't work because it hasn't for in some areas. And this came to a very dramatic end in 2015 uh, because there was this big migration movement from the Mediterranean uh, to the north of Europe. Especially because of Syria, what was happening in the Syrian civil war, right? Exactly. And also from Africa and so on. So uh, the rumor was that Sweden was very generous still. You could come and be accepted in Sweden. And also our prime ministers had for a number of years said that we should be willing to, to uh, accept refugees. This is part of a Swedish DNA. But then in December 2015, you hear from a lot of Swedish municipalities that no, we are on our knees. We can't cope anymore. So then it comes to an end. And in Malmö, that is close to where I live, I have a small story about this because there was this museum exhibition that opened during the summer 19, uh, 2015 that dealt with the spring and summer of 1945. And that exhibition was called Welcome to Sweden. <laughs> and a lot of persons also had this sign at the railway station in Malmö, welcome to Sweden. But then that didn't 
succeed anymore because it came to quite a brutal stop, which also spilled over to this exhibition. You were no longer welcome to Sweden. So this continuum from 1945 to 2015 was broken. And so, and, and this was kind of a, a trauma. And Swedish politicians also quite soon began to talk about things that had been banned. Uh, you, you had difficulties to show a Swedish flag for some years because that became associated with the extreme right wing and a lot of other things that if you did something that was Swedish, so, so to say, you could also be, be named a racist or a nationalist. And those are no good things in Sweden for a long time to, to be called because Swedes for a long time thought that the nationalists, they live in other countries. We in Sweden, we, have, we are beyond that phase, but of course we are not. And you could see now oh, it's, it's, wow. it's the championship for, for women in, in soccer. And, and then you, we are so nationalistic. So, uh, of course, we also have it. But we have a change, I would say, because to 1945 and perhaps some decades after, Swedish identity is based on history and not least this great power era. This is the best part of Swedish history. Yeah. And because of what we have talked about, the neutrality, the long peace, this part of Swedish history doesn't fit anymore. So the story of Sweden as an empire is kind of forgotten or, or they just move it away. And then huh. we come becomes instead this peaceful nation welcoming people from all around the world. And after 2015, that's also changing. That, yeah, we, we are both. We have this militaristic history. We have been nationalistic, but we have also been welcoming people from a lot of, of different nations. But this is also, like in so many other countries, a great challenge. And, and we haven't yeah. perhaps been willing to accept that challenge yet. And, and you could still find that in, in the great cities, you find that you could get better along speaking Arabic than Swedish. Oh, and wow. A lot of gang criminality uh, for the last few years. So we have a lot of shootings in Sweden and we are, uh, we are leading. And that's, this is no good news at all. It's the worst country in Europe when it comes to, to this uh, with gang members shooting on other gang members, but sometimes innocents also gets... Uh, are these away. gang members immigrants? Most of them. Yeah. Uh, and that is also because many of them haven't been... Uh, hadn't, uh, they hadn't had a successful uh, time at school. They are perhaps not integrated. They live in, in areas that are also inhabited by other immigrants. They don't meet people that are born in Sweden very often. So many of them feel like outsiders. So criminality could be kind of career. And of course, oh, this wow. is not the majority of them, but they are you know, few, a few of them. And, and they are, it's, it's a big problem nowadays.
Well, I mean, when 15% of any country is foreign born, that brings a lot of good and also a lot of challenges, especially for a small country. So um, um, I understand uh, the issues that Sweden is facing now. Um, I want to, if I may, please talk about a much lighter subject. Uh, it's, 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 it's a fun question, and I hope you indulge me on this. We're shifting gears here. Um, this has been bugging me, so I wanted to ask you, for a country whose native tongue is not English, Sweden has produced many world-renowned, famous English-language music bands. Examples of uh, ABBA, Roxette, Ace of Bass. I, I love these bands. But it, the, my question is, why? How? You don't see this with other countries, like, for example, France or Italy or Greece? The answer that I've heard a lot of time is that you could as a young person in Sweden get a free music education and ah. that is something that the state or the municipality will provide so a lot of young Swedes have learned music on in in schools or just after their school days and probably this has been the, the starting point for the Swedish music wonder uh, probably also a very good education of the English language. Probably, and I would say that, and I'm not the only one who's saying this, that Sweden is probably one of the most Americanized countries that you find in the world. And, and there is wow. a still a strong connection between Sweden and the United States. And I would say it became even stronger after 9-11. And the then Swedish Prime Minister, John Persson, said that today we are all Americans. Oh, and wow. That, that got a lot of res resonance in Swedes because not least this story of the emigration to America is it's vivid. And, and it's much easier to talk about Swedes emigrating to America than others immigrating to Sweden. <laughs> yeah, I would yeah. Say. So, uh, I bet. Um, if you wanted uh, our audience to remember just one point about Sweden's history after everything we've talked about, what would it be? Well, first of all, I would say it's so nice to, to talk to you about Swedish history because many Swedes are not that interested in history. This is a country that is obsessed, I would say, with the present and the future. So this is wow, interesting. a result, I guess, of what is, I guess, the, the most important thing in, in modern Swedish history, this long, peaceful history, because it is unique. It but is. I would say the, the effect of it, one important effect is that we don't often see that history is that important, that it is in so many other countries that has been forced to fight yeah. for their independence. And then history becomes much more important and vivid and and you tell it like it's more like an existential matter for swedes it's more like yeah that happened yeah and we move on we should <laughs> we shouldn't dwell on the past we should look ahead but they should appreciate this history this is wonderful history professor Xander, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners and to our listeners if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject please share it with us and tell us What's your perspective? Thank you so much, Professor Zander. Thank you so much, Adele. So, um... 
The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At History Behind News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research, and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at History Behind News. We peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past. Rather, is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our news. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments on Twitter or sending an email to Adele at historybehindnews.com. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with History Behind News, a history podcast for our news. <music>